So the question today is, why are you here? Why were you made? And further, why do we work? Why do we work? Maybe a fitting topic for Labor Day weekend. What's the real significance, even the ultimate meaning and purpose behind our various callings and careers? Be they farming or educating, be it being a business owner or being a stay-at-home mom. Why are you here? Why has God made you? And how is our work itself to be an element of our worship of God? That's the question for us. Well, some of you might recognize this guy right here. Wally, right? Well, Wally is the main character from the self-titled 2008 Disney animated film. This cute and somewhat quirky little robot was created, as you might remember if you watched the movie, simply to clean up garbage, to clean up trash on an abandoned and polluted planet Earth, which human beings had, fictionally of course, left some 700 years prior. In what is clearly meant to echo the biblical story of creation, Wally is depicted as a hardworking, curious, but sadly lonely little robot. That is, until one unforgettable day when Eve, yes, the character is entitled or uh, named Eve, a sleek-looking surveillance robot from somewhere beyond, arrives on a spaceship to investigate Earth's condition. Well, Wally falls head over tracks for Eve. He then daringly hitches a ride back into space on a celestial cruise ship where humans, we find out, are living a carefree, work-free, utopian-like existence. Or are they? With nothing to do but eat all day and watch TV all day, the movie depicts, ironically enough, the inhumanity of idleness and inactivity. People have grown weak and fat and pathetically worthless until an unlikely hero leads a mass mutiny back to planet Earth. You go, Wally. Well, what does it mean to be truly human? Why are we here? And really, isn't this the question so many people want to answer? What are we supposed to do? Some of us, we can't help ourselves. We are doers. Others are beers. We tolerate you. <laughs> Pastor Tom Nelson writes in a book that really sparked this thinking this summer for me in the book entitled Work Matters, connecting Sunday worship to Monday work. Quote, as human beings, we were not created to be do-nothings. We were created with work in mind. We have been designed by our Creator not only to rest and to play, but also to work. Close quote. Have you thought about that? He is exactly right. Listen, for work for many in our society has become yet another four-letter word. Many people simply want to avoid work. Others tend to resent work. Work is something that we have to get through in order to get to what really matters to us, namely recreation and rest. 
Just think about that word recreation for a moment. Do you notice the word creation in it? We were made to create. We were made to work. Work for many is an annoyance and an inconvenience, certainly not a calling nor even a context for contributing to the common good or bringing glory and honor to God who works for us. I said that like a minute. God does work for us. He works for us. He is for us. Friends, the Bible consistently contradicts this sort of mistaken, misinformed, and misshapen view of work. According to Scripture, work is not subhuman. It is instead a good gift from a benevolent creator, meant for his worship and for our flourishing. We were made to work. The Bible says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of of God, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Likewise, Paul says to the Colossians, whatever you do, notice, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Friend, work matters, but why? Why does our work matter? Well, because work matters because work is, oddly enough, a primary means by which we live out our good design, our good purpose, our God-ordained design here on earth. You matter. Your work matters. So over the next several weeks, with the exception of next Sunday, of course, as we gather as a faith family, to celebrate God's incredible goodness to us in the dedication of our new ministry spaces. Over the next few weeks in September, we're going to focus on what I like to call the three F's of work. The three F's of work from the Bible. The fruitfulness of work, or that of flourishing. The futility of work, or frustration, from the book of Ecclesiastes, among other places and even the future of our work. I hate to burst anybody's bubble, but we're not just hoping for Christ to return so we can chill out for eternity. We will work for eternity. But it will be devoid, stripped free of all the frustration, the sweat, and the toil of our work. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship. The word means masterpiece. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, notice, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, all month long, we will seek to make and unpack the case that the original point and purpose of human work was actually the advancement of human flourishing to the glory and praise of God. You see, human beings stand center stage in the drama of history. But the story ultimately is about God's work of redemption and God's work of reconciliation. It is not ultimately about us. We are supporting actors at best. And when we are at our best, we are supporting actors of Almighty God. We will see that work is not merely a necessary evil. That true, work makes a terrible God, and I believe there are some even in this congregation that are slaves 
to their jobs. Work makes a terrible God, but God intends man to honor him with our work, even as we worship. As the Apostle Paul reminded the Thessalonians, and we'll camp out there in First and Second Thessalonians in our third part of this series, Second Thess- that's easy to say, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, now we command you, Paul writes, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking notice in idleness. And not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. That we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even... When we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good." The gospel does not remove our call or obligation to work. It renews it. It doesn't remove it. It renews it. As it was in the beginning, so now as good Bible-believing Christians, Paul pointed the Thessalonians to the fact that we are not on the one hand to try to avoid work as if it's some kind of distraction from our real worship, For on the other hand, we are not to shamefully attach ourselves to our work, leaving Christ out of our Monday to Sunday, Saturday callings and careers. There are, there's peril in both places, danger in both ditches, avoidance and attachment. The truth is in the middle. Instead, we are to embrace the dignity even the dominion displaying reality of our work as a worshiping identity as followers of Jesus Christ, living and loving and laboring in the light of Christ's imminent return. We were made to work for God, and we were made, we've been remade through the gospel to wait for God as the promise of Christ comes. Now, to show you this, I want us to go back, as Cecil said, to page 1 and to Genesis chapter 1. Back to the beginning this morning. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 describe God's creation as a world full of work. You ever thought about that? Pastor Tim Keller, in his awesome book, Every Good Endeavor, another great book I gobbled up this summer, he writes, quote, "...in the beginning God worked." Creation is not the aftermath of a battle, but the plan of a craftsman. God made the world not as a warrior digs a trench, but as an artist makes a masterpiece. Some of you might know that uh, other cultures and thinkers have alleged that creation is the result of conflict, some dualistic thought that these cosmic forces were battling and all of a sudden stuff appeared. But the Bible contradicts that perspective and says, no, creation is the result of a master plan, of a careful artist, and that is the Lord our God, whom we encounter in the pages of Scripture. 
Our own uh, biblical principles for living in the Bible Fellowship Church states in Article 104-2.1, human work and rest find their origin in the work and rest or Sabbath of God. It says the original cycle of God's work and rest at creation sets the pattern for human work and rest. That work and rest are therefore an essential part of God's design for the human race. It is good to have Labor Day to unplug, but we were not meant to unplug entirely. We were meant to work. But the problem is our work-rest balance is always off-kilter. Every one of us tilt to one side or the other, either a workaholic or a work avoider. And the gospel helps us remember that it's all for Christ, all for God. Let me put it this way. This might be the thesis of today's sermon. We work because we were made in God's image, and God is a worker. We work because we were made as image bearers of a working God, but hold on. We are also needful of rest because we need regular reminders that we are only made in God's image and not little gods ourselves. Does that make sense? We were made to work, and we were made to rest in dependence and delight in the God who works for us. Now, notice in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, and I'm going to read to the end of this opening chapter, how at the very end of the very first work week on planet Earth, day six of creation, we are given what I think is actually the first great commission in the Bible. Not the Great Commission of Matthew 28, but the Great Commission of Genesis chapter 1. Notice what the text says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And notice, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, in the second chapter of the book of Genesis, we have sort of a telephotic lens sharpening the focus onto God's creational work on day six. We read that after God had established all the elements of the physical world and created all of the preconditions for which mankind may flourish, we read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the earth and the, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. Verse 15. 
The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden, notice, to work it and to keep it, to cultivate it and to guard it. Notice that the first great commission saw God himself make and command humanity to do what? To go and to reproduce, to multiply physically in order to steward God's good creation and to bear his divine image with responsibility and authority. Then, similarly, in the second great commission, after Christ's death and resurrection uh, from the tomb, the one that we're all familiar with from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, God restates and remakes his command through Christ to a new humanity, soon to be indwelt by his spirit, to do what? To go and reproduce spiritually in order to serve God's kingdom and to bear divine authority through their preaching of the gospel. The former commission typifies the later commission. One sort of expands on the next. Now, the opening chapters of Genesis really teach us four things, and that's how I want to organize today's message for you. The opening chapters of the book of Genesis teach us several important things, both about God and about us, that I want to help you understand and walk in in obedience to this morning. Number one, This is a restatement in a sense, but the early chapters of Genesis present God himself as a worker. God himself is a worker, and I cannot underscore this point enough. Just stop for a moment and and think about maybe the, the notion that you have had of God from your youth, or perhaps the notion about God that you interact with with people who don't know the Bible or who don't know the Lord. God is distant. He's disconnected. He's dispassionate about what's happening to man here on earth, if there is a God at all. The Bible has a very different way of portraying and painting the God of Scripture and the God of history. He is a God who works. In fact, God continues to work in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the working of his own spirit. Tim Keller writes, in the beginning, God worked. Just notice that the central actor on the stage in the opening pages of Scripture is God not man. Did you notice that? Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God is the one who is the object of all the action. God sees, God creates, God blesses, God plans, God places man in his earth, in his garden. The Bible incredibly begins by showing us how God makes a space God makes a space for man to experience his divine presence and love and glory and blesses mankind with all manner of resources and all manner of responsibility of both seed and stewardship as an act for their worship of God. God creates the condition. God gives the command. God receives the glory. The God of Scripture is not aloof, or not noticing what we're doing. The God of Scripture is not disinterested. He is not afraid of getting his cosmic hands dirty here on earth. The opening chapters of Genesis show us a deity with his hands deep down in the dirt, fashioning man and woman out of earth's elements. Our God is a working 
God. He did not create and then step back into his cosmic easy chair. He is intimately, intimately concerned about each and every one of our lives. Even the most minuscule detail of our lives, he is concerned about them. So number one, friend, we serve a God who is working. Secondly, this morning, notice that the early chapters of Genesis likewise tell us that we are made to image the working God. We are made to image God by reflecting his glory and by displaying his authority over all parts of creation. The immense privilege and responsibility that it is and that it must have been for Adam and Eve to, out of all the creatures that God had made, to be the unique creatures, the only creatures that God distinctly fashions, we're told by the scriptures, in his own image. And what does that mean? To be made in the image of God, simply stated, means to represent God. It means to represent God, the creator, before all the rest of creation. To be made in the image of God means that you and I reflect what God is like in some sense. We are not gods, but we reflect what God is like, perhaps in the very sense of communication, intelligible understanding, uh, effort, reason. All of these things are uh, image-bearing realities, but beyond that, it's we bear responsibility with God. We are to be caretakers of his creation. Human beings uniquely uh, bear the imago Dei, the, the image of God uniquely. And this is not a point that's uh, broadly accepted in our, our culture today. We need to be aware of that. In a section in his great book, uh, Tim Keller, that is, his, his uh, book, a section labeled Work as a Mark of Human Dignity, he writes the following, He says, quote, the rulers of the ancient Near East set up images and statues of themselves in places where they uh, exercised or claimed to exercise authority. The images represented the ruler himself as symbols of his presence and authority. Likewise, we are called to stand in for God here in the world, exercising stewardship over the rest of creation in his place as his vice Regents, close quote. Do you understand what Keller is explaining from the opening chapters of the Bible? Part of Adam and Eve's image-bearing reality is that God had planted them in the garden to reflect that God exists, that God cares, that God works for us, that God loves us. If we simply think that the point of going to work is merely to earn a paycheck, to use for ourselves, then we have an impoverished and essentially an unbiblical view of work. Christians do not simply work in order to serve and to give to the church. You need to hear that. The sole point for you as a believer in having a job is not just so you can support pastors and pay the bills at church. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. We work as contributors to creation. This has huge implications that we're going to return to and settle down with, particularly in the last of the three messages in this series. We work to earn a living, sure. We work to contribute generously to the church, sure. We work to share freely with those in need, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, absolutely. But beyond this, 
We work, and not just we Christians, but all human beings work to reflect the wisdom and the goodness and the creativity of Almighty God. By the way, those who don't know Jesus still bear his image too. And their work matters, just as yours does. And therefore, we should have a measure of respect and, and dignity and, and at times appropriate cooperation and, and, um, and, and even patronage for their work as directed by the Spirit of God, of course. Your contribution in the marketplace is an element of creational stewardship as an image bearer of Almighty God. It's part of what we need to be reminded of this morning. Someone said that the reformers, the Protestant reformers, again, the 15th century here, such as Luther and Calvin, taught that when we work, particularly when we as Christians work, we are the fingers of God. Have you ever thought about that? We are the fingers of God when we work for his glory. We are the agents of divine providence, demonstrating God's love and executing God's provision on planet Earth. Now, seen in this way, work is not simply or even primarily about us, is it? It is about God. It is about advancing his providence and his wisdom on earth. Our work, and again, any work done nobly and for the Lord, is a faithful rearranging of the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and human beings in particular to thrive and to flourish. Work itself is an act of faith. Think about that tomorrow when you drag yourself out of bed in the morning and you head off to the cubicle yet again or to the classroom yet again. It is an act of faith you are performing for Almighty God. Now thirdly, the early chapters of Genesis also inform us not only that work is holy, but that work is hard. Work is hard. That though cursed with thorns and thistles due to man's sinful rebellion against God, work still is dignified and blessed of the Lord. In one book I read, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. I didn't know that's what they were singing when I was growing up, but maybe, maybe it's not, I don't know. We'll circle back to this idea of futility and frustration of our work on account of God's judgment in two weeks' time on September 17th. But suffice it to say right now from Genesis chapter 3, and specifically from God's answer to Adam, that we find out why our work is so hard. Why is it so hard? Why is it so elusive, so frustrating at times to work? Well, Genesis 3, 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Guys, if you ever need an out. <laughs> no. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. I will pay for that later. And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. For you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Work. Newsflash. Is frustrating. It is hard. Our relationship not just with God. Has been contorted. But our relationship to our vocations. Has been contorted as well. The BPL says humanity's fall into sin brought a curse upon work and rest, resulting in pain and difficulty and futility. 
Some of us can't even enjoy resting any longer. We have to be working. That's all a part of the curse. Listen, our work is now a world of worry. Our work is riddled with regret. Our work is full of frequent frustrations, constant sweat, and the fear of futility. Come back in two weeks to look at what Ecclesiastes chapter 2 says about work. The Bible tells us that the paradigm of man's original vocation is now sadly polluted, just like Wally's world, with the problem of evil and sin. But work isn't the problem. Sin is the problem. Work is not the problem. See, the garden scene of Genesis 1 and 2 is given as a picture of man's flourishing before God prior to the fall of man, prior to frustration, prior to corruption, prior to the catastrophic elements and results of man's consequences due to sin. I just, I'm sure somebody has written about this, but I just started to think about this this past week. That in the garden, we see a home, a temple, and a marketplace. In the garden, we find man's home, the place where uh, man was made to live before the face of God. We find the place where man is meant to worship before the face of God, the idea of a temple. And we find a place even where man is made to labor or work before the face of God. We find them all three One place with all three realities being fractured due to man's unfaithfulness. And we find them untethered today. We will focus on worship this morning. But I guarantee that the majority of you will walk out and say, well, I got my worship done for the week. And you will go to work without nary a thought that you are to worship God while you work. The gospel gets us back to garden thinking, where our living and our laboring and our worshiping all converge in one place. Sin ruined the state of the garden. But the gospel of Jesus Christ restores this home and temple and marketplace reality as a place where we can once again flourish, flourish as God intended for us to flourish. And that brings us to our fourth and final point this morning. Work is hard. Sorry, firstly, work is holy. Secondly, work is hard. But thirdly, work is hopeful. There's an element of hope to our work. The early chapters of Genesis point to the truth that our work ultimately finds fulfillment and satisfaction solely when it is connected, linked, and rooted, and anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His work of redemption and salvation. The Australian minister Philip Jensen put it this way. I believe Tim Keller quotes this. He says, quote, if God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king because they prized mental work. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? He comes in the world as a carpenter. Close quote. You ever thought about that? Some of us have very little use for nothing more than a dying Jesus. But he did so much more than die for us. He came to show us what it meant to live for Christ, for God, the Father. The incarnation of the Son of God was no seaside vacation. 
The incarnation of the Son of God was no seaside vacation. He wasn't coming to take a rest, but to do a work. Jesus Christ came to earth to work, John 5, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. John chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus came to do more than simply die on the cross for our sins. He rolled up his sleeves and got to work for the glory of God. He came to show us what living faithfully and living joyfully and living obediently before the face of God the Father actually looks like. He came as a carpenter, not merely a scholar. It was Dorothy Sayers who once wrote, what is the Christian understanding of work? Is it that work is not primarily It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is or should be the full expression of the worker's faculties, the medium in which he offers himself to God. How do you view your work? In other words, who am I, Pastor Dan? Who who am I? I am a husband, I am a father, and I am a pastor in that order. But before all of this, I am an image bearer of God himself. And that image bearing identity shapes and informs not only what I do, but who I am and why I do what I do. And the same is true for you. My hope in this series is to elevate our work, to elevate our work. Plenty of people have noted that the word vocation, you even see the the root vocal in that word. The word vocation means simply a calling. A calling. But that's very different than having a job. And this is no put down to if you say, I have a job, as opposed to somebody who says, I have a calling. A job is something you merely do for a paycheck. A job is a chore. A job is a means, whatever that task is, to a greater end. That's, of course, making money. But a calling or a vocation, scholars have suggested, is something that we do out of a sense of responsibility or concern for others. A calling is something we do not for ourselves fundamentally, but for others. A calling is something we do for the sake of contributing to the greater good, whether we receive remuneration or not. And listen, our primary calling as followers of Jesus Christ regardless of what we do for our work, regardless of whether or not we are in full-time Christian ministry, or whether we are retired, or whether we uh, teach, or whether we work in a factory, your primary calling and mine is to represent Jesus as Adam was to represent God the Father. We are to reflect His love and His goodness and the transforming power that He brings to others as we give the praise to God. And you can do that whether you change a diaper or a spark plug. You can do that whether you teach a class of sixth graders or you teach a seminary class. You can do that when you do it for the Lord and you do it from the heart. Our work for Christ is a reflection of his work for us. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God works. We as his image bearers work. Because of sin, our work is often almost always frustrating and futile, it seems. But because of Christ, our work is full of hope. Our work is full of meaning, even into eternity. As I close, I just want to give you four quick questions to maybe ruin your week or to ruin or to renew it. I'm either going to ruin your week or I'm going to renew your week. Here are the four questions. Number one, what is your motivation for getting out of bed on Monday morning and doing what God has led you to do? What is your real motivation for doing what you do vocationally? Whether you call it a job, whether you're retired, whether you call it a calling, whatever it is, is it spiritual or is it merely physical? Be honest with yourself. Do you go to work simply to make a buck? Or do you go to work because God has strategically put you somewhere for his glory and to add to the world? So that's the why question. Secondly, the how question. How does your work ethic reflect the image of God? Are we poor representations of a God who does all things at the end of a work week says, you know what? That's good. That's the kind of God we have. Or do we do do shabby, shoddy work as Christians? There ought not to be anyone else in any of our workplaces who outworks us. There are plenty of people who are smarter than us, but nobody should outwork us. We should have a great godly work ethic, not to be made much of, but to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.23 again, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ Remember that when you go off to work tomorrow. Number three, the what question. Are you practicing good stewardship of your God-given abilities and resources? Remember the parable of the stewards, the managers? God has blessed all of you with so much intellectually, materially. Are you using it to its max for the glory of Almighty God? Are you practicing good stewardship? Am I practicing good stewardship? Or are we mailing it in and just waiting for Christ to return? Fourth and last, a practical question here. Are there ways that we as your pastors and elders can help you develop your skills, develop your vision of what it means to work faithfully, to share Christ humbly, and to live generously in light of what you're hearing here this morning? See, my job as a pastor is not merely to equip you for what you do between 9 and noon on Sunday. Part of what we, Pastor Jerry, Brad, our elders, and I do, we are to, we are to help equip you for real life as well. So what conversations can we have? What questions do you have? How can we seek to better help you? We won't know all the answers, but we can certainly pray with you and think with you and try to encourage you as you want to live faithfully for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, a verse I'll probably share every week here. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Pop quiz, where is that verse? What's the, the famous heading of that chapter? It's the resurrection chapter. Our labor is not in vain because we serve a risen Savior and we will live embodied lives for all eternity. Well, good old Wally certainly learned a thing or two about his purpose and about why he was made. The tagline for the movie, if you don't know, is after 700 years of doing what he was built for, he'll discover what he was made for. I hope it doesn't take you or I 700 years to figure out why we were made. We can learn it right now if we listen to the Spirit of Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for this perhaps a bit direct uh, reminder. Some perhaps at times, maybe a bit of a rebuke, but certainly I hope for many a, a reorientation of how it is and why it is you've made us in the first place. Lord, we just know how much we need the grace of Jesus and the help of the Holy Spirit, both to understand, maybe even beyond, to, to work out, to apply, to, to live out these glorious truths. Thank you, Lord, for making us. Thank you for existence. Thank you, Lord, for purpose. And we pray that you will help us, Lord, to see that you desire us to flourish, and by faith in Christ we may so, Lord, we give you the glory, and we ask for your blessing. Even now, as we respond in this song and ready our hearts for communion, we ask you to be pleased in Jesus' name. Amen.